Okay, so the Psalms is actually my favorite book of the Bible, so it's a privilege for me to be able to be a part of this series, and I've chosen my favorite Psalm out of the book for us to take a look at today, Psalm 51, which is actually a Psalm of repentance. Yeah, and you know, I've entitled this Repentance as a Lifestyle, and some of you may be freaking out. Repentance, oh boy. You know, you may be like that Southern gentleman who went to church and heard his pastor preaching on repentance, and he went up to him afterwards and he said, Pastor, now you've gone from preaching to meddling. You know, <laughs> repentance kind of starts to get a little scary for us. And, uh, but you know what? It's mentioned over 70 times in the Bible. And so it's an important concept for us to dig into. And the Hebrew word for repentance or repent is shuv. Shuv. It's like move only with a sh in front of it. So I want you to remember shuv because shuv actually does in one sense mean to move, to turn around from the way you're going and move in the opposite direction. In the Bible's context, it means to go from, from walking away from God to be walking toward Him. And how many of us don't see the value in moving toward God instead of away from Him? And that's really the concept that comes into play here in Psalm 51. Now, there are seven different penitential or repentance psalms that King David actually penned. This is the fourth of seven, and I think it's the most beautiful. First of all, it's the longer of them all, and it's also the transparency, the raw emotion, the honesty, and the context of the psalm really makes it stand out. Now, when I first became a believer in Jesus, Someone said a word of prophecy over me that has stuck with me. And now, regardless of what you think about words of prophecy, I've been grappling with this one because she said, David, as you grow in the Lord, you're going to grow into a person just like your namesake, King David. And, you know, the Bible says of David that he was a man after God's own heart, which is Pretty cool. I mean, who doesn't want to be someone after God's own heart? And so there are many wonderful things in the Bible, both in the Psalms and in 2 Samuel, about the life of David that are admirable. But there are some that are kind of tough. And in fact, that's the backdrop of this psalm. Look at the, at the uh, superscript there at the top. It says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, many know this story, but perhaps you don't, and that's okay. I encourage you to read it. It's found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But David was a warrior king, and every spring he would go out with his armies to fight against the enemies of Israel, and they had multiple enemies. But there was one spring where he decided to hang back. The armies went, and he stayed. And you know, sometimes when you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you can get in big trouble. Have you found that? Yeah. Well, David found it in the worst way possible. He was standing on the palace roof, looking out over the city, and he just happened to see this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and she was bathing on her roof. And I mean, he was struck, and then he was filled with lust, and as kings could do, he commanded that she be brought to him, he had sex with her, and she got pregnant. 
Now, there was more complications, as you could imagine there usually are. Bathsheba was married to Uriah, who was one of David's generals. So he decides, I'm going to figure out how to cover this thing up. You know, they always say the cover-up is worse than the crime, and it eventually did. What, he's, what he figured, though, is I'm going to have Uriah brought back from the battle lines so that he can go in and, and sleep with his wife, and no one will be the wiser. Except for the fact when Uriah came back, he had this kind of loyalty towards his men who were battling, and he absolutely refused. Even when David tried to encourage him strongly, he refused to go and sleep with his wife. And so David had to come up with plan B. And the plan B was this. All right, send a message with Uriah to the generals. They read it, and it said, put Uriah at the front lines. When the battle gets really heated, tell your men to fall back. And that's what happened. And Uriah was killed. Rather, he was murdered. And David thought, well, at least I got rid of the problem. But you never do. And it became known. In fact, it became known to the greatest spiritual leader in Israel at the time, the prophet Nathan. So Nathan came to the king and he told him a story. He said, oh, king, there's a, a man in your land, a very wealthy man, who when visitors came from afar, Instead of going to his flocks in abundance, he went down to a very poor man who only had one lamb whom, which he loved, and he took that lamb and killed it to feed his guests. And when David heard about it, he was enraged. And in his hypocrisy, he said, such a man should not be allowed to live. And then Nathan said, O king, thou art the man. One of the greatest moments of confrontation and drama in the scriptures. And so David pens this Psalm 51 out of the, the brokenness that came from that confrontation. Powerful. And, and, and so this idea of what David, the dark place that he went, the huge broken thing that he did, the sin. You know, Many of us don't really deal with or think of ourselves as murderers or perhaps even adulterers, but all of us in one way or another carry stuff, don't we? Mistakes, problems, sins that we've made in the past, the shame and guilt that goes with that. And so in the same way, we all need to experience God's cleansing power in our lives. So because of that, we can all identify, regardless of the depth of our own problems and brokenness, we can all identify with what David says. And we can see in his words, hope for ourselves as well in this idea of repentance. Not only a one-time thing, but perhaps even as a lifestyle as a spiritual discipline. David understands, first of all, who God is. Second of all, what sin is. And thirdly, what true repentance is. Let's read it together and see. He cries out in verse one, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Open, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar." You see, in the midst of this darkness, David grabs hold of repentance as a gift from God and it changes his life and it can change ours as well. If first of all, we can understand as David did who God is, the nature of God. That is really foundational because a lot of us carry around kind of incomplete or slightly crooked or broken views of who God is, perhaps because of how we were raised or whatever. Some people think of God and they see some kind of a tyrannical figure, someone who's just there looming and lurking and waiting for us to trip up so he can punish us. Others may see God as, you know, just kind of a distant person, you know, kind of like a, a kindly grandfather, but who really doesn't pay much attention or care much about the things that we do, good or ill. And David knows different. David knows that first of all, God is consistent. Theologians call this uh, the attribute of immutability. He is always the same. You can count on him to not act different from one situation or one person to another. Notice in verse one, David says, have mercy upon me, what? according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. In other words, act like I know you act in accordance with how your nature is. God, you are a good God. And he doesn't need to be convinced or cajoled or placated. We don't have to wonder when we come to him what kind of mood he's gonna be in. He's always consistent. He says through the prophet Malachi, 
an older testament prophet for i am the lord i do not change therefore you are not consumed and when we understand that's how god will be consistent we don't have to fear coming to him and it's important for us then to not just know about god but to really know him to know who he is and who is he to david he's gracious his cry for mercy is with an expectation of a response of grace. You know, it's been said that justice means getting what we deserve. Mercy means not getting what we deserve. But grace means getting what we don't deserve, you see. And so the fact that God is gracious means not just that we won't have the fruit of our problems in our lives he'll he'll be merciful but he'll also be gracious look at the words that he uses to describe here he has loving kindness that's that word grace that's how it's translated here grace loving kindness chen in the hebrew means this riches of god wanting the very best for us he wants to pour that out regardless of whether or not we deserve it he has not just mercy david says your tender mercies there's a loving, nurturing mercy that God brings into our lives. A generous spirit. He's not going to say, what, you Brickner, you're here again? You've had enough opportunity. Get out of here. He's generous, overly generous. He's more, his giving is greater than our capacity to receive. And so David says, you are, in the midst of this situation, you are the God of my salvation. It's very personal. Very transparent. Is he the God of our salvation? I hope so. Makes all the difference in the world. And when we know this about God, and we know who God is, we have no fear in coming to him because we know, we know that he wants what is best for us and he'll do what's best for us and he'll be consistent and he'll be gracious, but he will also be just. And this is important too. Because for the person who thinks that God is some kind of grandfatherly character who really doesn't care about what we do or don't do, David says, no, actually, God is the judge of all the earth. And he says in his repentance here, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, how could he say that? Had David not sinned against Bathsheba? against Uriah? Well, of course. Of course he had. And any time we have some aspect of sin or brokenness in our lives, it doesn't just impact us, does it? Other people around us are hurt often as well. But you see, the only cry for relief and for justice that either Uriah, Bathsheba, or anyone else can make is because that justice is fully established in the character of God himself. Only because of who he is and the standard that he has set can we know good from evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood. They are fully established in him. And because of that, wherever in the world, and there are so many places in our world today where there is sin, injustice. 
we know ultimately that God is a just God. He's going to make all things right in the end. But the claim for justice for anywhere in the world is based upon the fact that he is a good, gracious, and just God who really does care about what's going on in this world that he's created. So when we realize what God is, who God is, what he's like, then we're going to have a better sense, as David did, of the true nature of sin. We tend to have a struggle with repentance as a lifestyle because we haven't always fully grasped the true nature of sin. And some of us will see, well, it's just the worst forms of behavior. I've never done anything like David did, so I'm okay. Or we'll see it like so many people do who got, get caught in some kind of a scandal, you know, whether it's a government official or Hollywood, and you know, the cameras are right there and they get up and they say, I made a mistake. You know, for me, the mistake is like when you turn the wrong way down a runway street. It doesn't exactly describe the depth of what sin is. And David does in the words that he uses in this passage. He sees it as those things which separate us from God. Anything, big or small. So he uses these words transgression, which is like crossing a boundary. You know, we think of, uh, you know, our neighbor's house. That would be a boundary. You break in to your neighbor's house, there's consequences. But, you know, there are all kinds of boundaries in this world that are set and established because of who God is. And we often do cross over those boundaries. The other one is missing the mark. That's what iniquity means. Like there's a mark that's been set, like you have an arrow that you pull back and you shoot at the target, but the arrow falls short. It goes to the right, to the left, it misses. And all of us have participated in behaviors. And some say, yeah, well, I'm just not that sinful. Here's the deal. Think of it this way. There are two men who are caught around an erupting volcano and they run to get away and their only escape is blocked by a river of lava, you know, the stream going past and they know they have to jump it to get away. And one of them is an old man and the other's young. And they both take a running start. The old man leaps as far as he can but it's only a few feet, and into the boiling lava he falls to, his, to perish. The young man, much stronger, healthy, he leaps very far, and he almost makes it, but not quite. Same fate. God doesn't grade sin on a curve. <laughs> there are not big sins that matter and little sins, not so much. But in reality, anything, anything that separates us from a holy God is that sin. And, and where does it come from? Well, David says in verse 5, from birth. He says, in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not talking about what was going on when his mom got pregnant. Now he's talking about something that I think all of us, when we get honest, recognize in that there's something broken in this world. Even in the smallest of children, we see selfishness, all kinds of things that demonstrate the fact that 
Unlike what many of us would like to believe and what many religions actually teach, we aren't born good. We're not even born morally neutral. We're born broken. And that's what David is talking about here. Or to quote another uh, famous Jewish poet that I enjoy, Bob Dylan, in his, uh, in his song, Saved, he says, I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone cold dead, as I stepped out of the womb. That's part of the reality of the sin that we're talking about. Think about it this way. Have you ever bitten into an apple and found a worm inside, even though there's no hole on the outside of the apple you bit? Well, how did that happen? Simply this. An insect laid an egg in the apple blossom. And as the blossom turned into an apple, that egg inside hatched. And that worm began to chew its way out, out to the outer side. It's a picture, if you will, of sin, which is in our hearts from the very beginning. And eventually chews its way through wrong attitudes and actions out into our lives. And the impact is often brutal. What does it do to us? Well, David says here what it does. It, it, it's a joy killer. He says in verse 11, restore to me the joy of your salvation, God. Through this experience, he had lost his joy. And I have to say, I know what that's like too. I mean, I don't know, it makes me sick actually to think of a numbers of days in my life where I've walked around joyless in my life because there's something that I haven't dealt with between me and God. And I, for whatever reason, pride, inattention, didn't shove, didn't move back toward him. I took my time and lived in joylessness. It also limits our access to the very presence of God and the power of his Holy Spirit. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and also do not cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. All these three things for the person who's ever experienced what it means to be in relationship with God, this is like torture. And yet how often do we live in this kind of God-removed state? And that's why repentance, turning back toward Him, needs to be part, not just of a one-time or once-a-month, but a daily thing. That I need it every day. And so it should be part of our spiritual discipline. And once we understand what sin is really like and the corrosive nature of it in terms of our connectiveness to God, then we respond out of desperation, out of hopefulness, out of need by repenting. And David obviously has a very clear view of what repentance truly is. And it's not merely saying, <laughs> you know, I made a mistake. Oh, that's important to realize when we do. But unless we really fully understand what repentance truly is, we'll, we'll resist the, 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 the process because it requires a certain amount of self-awareness and transparency and a willingness to come to grips with who God is and what sin is. And then when we repent, it's not merely acknowledging a mistake 
It's not merely embarrassment or shame. It's not merely disappointment or regret. There are a few things that David says in this psalm that are very poignant. First of all, he starts out with a cry for mercy. We know what that means. We know mercy means not getting what you deserve. And if you're crying for it, you know what you do deserve, see? Hmm. So you're coming to God now asking for mercy because you don't have a leg to stand on. There's no trick up the sleeve. There is no hope that we can kind of negotiate out of this one. It's just, you know, I've got no other hope but the mercy of God. He's, he says, blot out my transgression like there's a book somewhere where it needs to be erased. You know, David thought that he had escaped notice, that he had covered up. Plan A, plan B, neither of them worked because ultimately God's truth has a way of showing up and shining a light on our lives. And that's what David says. So please, God, you got the book. Wipe it out. Erase. Use some white out. Whatever you have to do, God, help me here. He uses some very interesting language as well that come from the ancient Israelite worship. He talks about hyssop, right? You know, purge me, wash me. Uh, these are actually words that are very descriptive of the Older Testament uh, process of people being cleansed from ceremonial impurity. If you were, were uh, coming down with leprosy, which is a dread skin disease, you could go to the priest and be sprinkled with hyssop in the hopes that God would heal you in that moment. All of these things. So David's saying, I'm like a spiritual leper. Very graphic words. Or if you come in contact with a dead body, you're ceremonially impure and you have to go and be cleaned up. You need to be washed. And here's the interesting thing. A leper, white scales on your skin, make me whiter than snow, God. Heal me. Bring life from these dead bones which you have broken. These are graphic words, descriptions that leave us kind of feeling like, boy, I don't know if I want to do this, but here's the deal and why it's so hopeful. And that is because you can't. We can't. I can't. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. You see, this is all a work of God. It's a supernatural work that we can't do on our own. It's only because of his grace that we're able to realize our need to repent, and it's only by his grace that we can be forgiven and restored. Create in me, a, who, who, who can create a clean heart except for God? So this is where we see that all of this is his gift. All of this is from him because of his great love, because he wants what's best for us and will do what's best for us. He intends good for his children and repentance is the pathway. In these last couple of minutes, I just want to throw a few ideas up on the screen to remind us of the value of actually incorporating this into our daily lives. First of all, repentance, a lifestyle of repentance, produces spiritual growth. There's nothing that can ab actually produce greater growth in us than being made right with the Lord. When we're walking away from him, we're separating ourselves from him. When we come back to him, we're drawing closer to him. 
David says there's a brokenness that we have to be prepared for. We look around the world and we say, yeah, we live in a broken world, but the broken world begins here. And it's tough to be that kind of honest and transparent with ourselves and with God, but when we do, David says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's the pathway, the entrance, the portal to his blessing. And when we know who we are in this brokenness, it produces humility. The biggest problem in our world today is pride. The Bible talks a lot about pride. But this kind of repentance develops humility. Isn't it great to be in the presence of a humble person? You know? Not a lot of them. I aspire to be humble, but I know that I'm usually prideful. But when you're there with somebody who's truly broken and humble, they're just such a welcoming kind of presence that you feel at rest. There's, there's no superiority. There's no judgmentalism. There's just a welcoming, warm person. And that's the kind of thing that this produces in us. And then secondly, this closeness to God comes because, well, we understand this in, in human relations. You've heard this phrase, keep short accounts, right? With your spouse, with your children, with your coworker. If something happens, you get into an argument. If you don't say anything, if you don't resolve it, you don't come back sometime later that day or whatever, eventually it's going to build up and there will be walls that are erected and soon it's like, where do we begin, Right? Well, if that's true in human relationships, how much more so with God? And so this lifestyle of repentance actually helps us to keep short accounts with the one who loves us the most, with the creator of the universe. And we should, and we should want to have that experience in our lives. Secondly, a lifestyle of repentance leads to service a rich life of service, actually, both to others and to the Lord. Um, you know, who more than a broken person can help another broken person, right? We are wounded healers, and David says, then, once this happens in my life, I'm going to teach transgressors their ways because I'm one of them. And sinners will be turned to you because I know that's what I've been going through. And the deepest wounds of my life have often been the greatest opportunity for me to develop empathy for others similarly wounded. And that's God's plan. It's a principle. We don't want the wounding, but God uses it so that we can serve others. And what a rich life we can have wounded healers, but also great service to God. God is calling us not just to serve others, but to serve him as his worshipers. And so David now recognizes that once he's been restored, he says, open my mouth and my lips will proclaim your praise. Lips once closed in anguish over brokenness are now opened in joyful thanks and praise for the mercy of God. What a great service we have to give to him when we have experienced his forgiveness. 
And lastly, a lifestyle of repentance reminds us in the greatest way possible of God's love for us. You know, this story has kind of a bitter ending. Um, The rabbis teach that if Nathan the prophet had come to David immediately after his sin, it would have been way too much for him and he would have died. And so God was merciful to wait long enough. And then when he did come to him, God had another way because he should have died. He should have paid the penalty for murder, but Bathsheba actually did have that baby. But the baby died. And so the rabbis actually say the baby died instead of King David. Well, they were right about one thing. David's son did die in his place, but they got the wrong son. Throughout the Bible, Jesus is called the son of David. And he's actually literally physically descended from King David, but more than that, this is a messianic title, a title of kingship. And in fact, David did experience great forgiveness in his greater son, Jesus, who died a death that David, that this David, that all of us deserve. But he rose again to give life and forgiveness to all who call upon him, to all who shuv, who move toward him and receive his kindness. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a wonderful promise? We should learn it. We should memorize it. Maybe use it as part of our discipline of repentance as a lifestyle. Because in the comfort of his love and forgiveness, we can know that there is more capacity for loving kindness in God's heart than there is capacity for brokenness in our own. And that's a comforting thought. The band's going to come back and sing a song, not just any song, they're going to sing this song. And you'll see that it's a song of great content for us. We're going to have our time of giving. But before that, I'd like to lead us in a kind of a different prayer. Maybe God has been speaking to you about this subject as we've been here together. There's something that you want to talk to him about. So I'm going to lead us in prayer and give us a little bit of time to do just that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that we can have confidence in your character your graciousness toward us, your love, your justice. So we do come to you, Lord, recognizing that all of us here have missed the mark. All of us have fallen short. And yet we realize that we want to turn back to you. So we take a few moments now in the quietness of this time 
to reflect on those things and bring them to you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are indeed faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us. We receive your cleansing. Create in us clean hearts. May you renew a steadfast spirit within us. Fill us with the joy of our salvation. And may we experience that not just now, but each and every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.